It's 835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Time certainly flies. Hate to mention this, but we are past the halfway point of the State Fair. Five days left. Um, Actually, the weather forecast looks like, in general, is going to be absolutely outstanding. Today is literally a Chamber of Commerce day. So if you're coming out to the State Fair, be sure to enjoy yourself. I was making a mental list of all the different things that I... I, I've, I've been out here. This is the fifth day we've been broadcasting, and I'm, I'm still I'm, I'm behind. I, there, every year, there's stuff I have to eat, and I still I, I'm way behind. I was thinking I got to get onto this. Got to get something maybe today, or else I'm just going to end up eating all the stuff on Friday, and that will not be good. All right, we start off today's program like we start off every program. Three big things, and there is one dominant story in the news. That is North Korea escalating worldwide tensions threatening the United States and the president responding. All right, here's what started all this. I think everybody understands that North Korea is an incredibly backward country. I mean, think think the Flintstones. I mean, that that's what North Korea is, except you have an absolute crazy person who is the dictator, this Kim Jong-un, who has decided that the way he keeps his regime in power is essentially by threatening the world. One of the lines that president after president have drawn in the sand is that we will not allow North Korea to develop a nuclear program because there is a madman that is in charge there. And just like John F. Kennedy would not allow missiles in Cuba threatening the United States and other countries in the Western Hemisphere, president after president have said, we're not going to allow this crazy guy in North Korea to have nuclear capability that is going to be able to threaten the world in general and the United States in particular. That has not stopped this crazy tin pot dictator. Now, what happened last week is the United Nations, with the blessing of China and Russia, and this is where it really becomes dramatic because China and Russia sit on the U.S. Security, UN Security Council. They could have vetoed these new sanctions. They didn't. China and Russia are starting to, I think, recognize what a danger North Korea poses. Anyhow, what's happened is the story, Washington Post runs a story two days ago quoting U.S. intelligence officials as saying that they now think that North Korea um, is accelerating its progress towards developing a working nuclear-tipped missile. Um, what this would mean is they, they have a like a ballistic missile, and then they have a miniature nuclear warhead that you put on the missile, and then you launch it. And the concern is that if these bombs are small enough to fit on the missiles, um, what happens is you can then theoretically endanger um, maybe even the U.S. Um, last month, the North Korea successfully t- tested for the first time this intercontinental ballistic missile that theoretically could reach the continental United States. So now you have accelerated capacity. You have this crazy person who the world and every U.S. president going back for several uh, terms have said, you know, can't get nuclear capabilities. It now appears he is moving closer to doing that. All right. We have talked in diplomatic terms. It's been, you know, you, you've had a lot of the, the conversations by the diplomats and presidents, including President Trump, saying, hey, we, we want to use, you know, sanctions. You know, we want to have economic sanctions. We want to try to have the world put pressure on them. And, and that's that appears to be the case as well. But at the same time, for the first time, I think, ever, now there is real fear 
that North Korea either might have or may close to be close to actually developing the capability to attach these small nuclear warheads to these long-range ballistic missiles and actually, actually endanger the United States or places like Guam, where there's a lot of people that live and there's U.S. military bases. So yesterday, President Trump, in response to this escalating threat from North Korea, says something like this. North Korea better not make any more threats to the United States. If they do, they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. In other words, we are not going to be pushed around by this madman in North Korea. All right, so Trump says that. As soon as he says that, the reaction... Oh, my goodness gracious, you know, heads exploding. New Zealand's prime minister said the remarks weren't helpful in the environment. The Austra- in Australia, the prime minister expressed concern with Trump's use of language. A conflict would be shattering. It would have catastrophic consequences. We all understand that. I was watching one of the talking head shows last night. There was one guy after another from a think tank saying, well, this just wasn't very diplomatic of President Trump to say, hey, if you don't knock this stuff off, we are going to, the phrase was, unleash fire and fury. Oh, how dare you talk tough in response to this nuclear threat against the United States? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think there is anything wrong with what President Trump said. As a matter of fact, I think, obviously, you want to keep open all the channels of diplomacy. You want to try to allow the sanctions to work. But at the same time, I think to try to appease a crazy dictator is absolutely ridiculous. And you know what? That is not the way that other presidents have been ha- behaved. I go back to John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, you know, when again there was the Cuban Missile Crisis and the threat to the United States, you know, he came out and said, this is not going to stand. We are not going to allow this to happen. I think too often, too often, maybe the United States presidents have been unwilling to say what needs to be said. But regardless, we are in a new time. Barack Obama was not faced with this threat. George Bush was not faced with this threat. Bill Clinton was not faced with this threat. North Korea is escalating its ability to attack the United States. And I, for one, don't have any problem at all with President Trump staring down this tin pot dictator and saying, if you continue going down this course, if you want to provoke a confrontation with the United States, you will lose. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you outraged that President Trump would say, if you continue down this path, if you continue threatening the United States, we are prepared to meet those threats with fire and fury like the world has never seen? Lots of people are wringing their hands. Oh, this might upset the dictator. Well, I think it's stuff that needs to be said. 414-799-1620. Are you troubled by Trump's comments, or is he saying what what the world needs to hear, that we will not be threatened. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We are back to discuss next. It's 842. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. 
846, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Some are bringing a lawsuit against the DNR, claiming they've overreached when it comes to regulating the state's dairy farm industry. Do you agree, or is some oversight a necessity? Scafidian Bill's that discuss at 135 today as they broadcast live from the State Fair, sponsored by By the Yard, Outdoor Furniture and Accessories. Okay, 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, if you turn on the Talking Head shows today, what you see is all this hand-wringing. Oh, we can't believe that President Trump, in response to apparently intelligence information indicating that North Korea is getting closer and closer to developing the capability to have ballistic missiles that could reach the United States and carry small nuclear warheads. Trump is saying, look, if if you continue this path and you continue met, uh, threatening the United States, you know, be prepared for us to unleash fire and fury like the world has never seen. Oh, my gosh, how can you talk to this guy like this? Well, the problem is we have been trying to appease this man for years and years. None of it has worked. Do I think Trump is saying, hey, we're going to start bombing North Korea tomorrow? No. But at the same time, uh, unless... Unless Kim Jong-un is even crazier than I think he is, the reality is if this if this tin pot dictator gets into a battle with the one remaining superpower in this world, he's going to end up losing. And maybe for the first time in years, he has run into a president who is not going to cower in fear of this. Let's see, Dan on our text line texts. Trump should point out that he's doing now what Obama should have been doing for the last eight years. He might reference, as you said, John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He also might reference Neville Chamberlain's Peace in Our Time appeasement policy and wrestle with how that ended up um, uh, working out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that is the issue. Now, the question becomes, what are you willing to do? Um, if if North Korea refuses to abandon its program, if North Korea refuses to respond to the sanctions, um, are you really willing to make a preemptive sort of strike? I don't know. But I don't think that we're at that point now. But this idea that you can have, uh, again, and I would describe North Korea as a third world country, but that would be an insult to third world countries. Seriously, it's like the Flintstones, except you've got a madman who is developing nuclear capabilities. You cannot allow this person to to, um, threaten the, the rest of the world. And you can try diplomacy so much, and I think it's great. You know, let's try to reason with him. Let's try to, you know, hope cooler heads are going to prevail. But the problem is you've been doing that for years and years, and none of it has worked. Now, the good news is, for the first time in a long time, you've got China and Russia who appear to be on board recognizing the threat that North Korea poses. And if they're two principal trading partners, I mean, the reality is the only thing propping up that regime is the fact that you've got China. China and um, Russia that continue in one shape or way or another to, to do business with North Korea. If if actually China and Russia get on board with economic sanctions, my guess is the dictator is going to be forced to back down. So he's becoming even more isolated. Having said that, I don't have any issue at all with President Trump saying, just like President Kennedy said, this cannot stand. A- and if you do not clean up your act, you know something is going to happen. We are not going to allow the U.S. to U.S. citizens to live under a threat of a nuclear attack from a crazy person. And if that means regime change, that that's that's fine. 
That's what's going on. Now, again, I don't know. I don't know what would be the line in the sand. Barack Obama kept talking about lines in the sand and then daring people to cross them. They crossed them, and he did nothing. I think by talking tough, I think Donald Trump clearly sends the message that when he draws that line in the sand, whatever the line in the sand is, you you better not cross it. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. But this is what strong presidents do. They do not appease, especially when you consider the relative strengths. We're not talking about provoking a nuclear confrontation with Russia or with China. You know, we're talking about a madman in half of, in a relatively small, an extremely small country who thinks he can menace the world. That cannot stand. And for people who are wringing their hands about what the president said, what you got to realize is appeasement has not worked with him at some point in time if he continues to try to develop nuclear capabilities. Do you really want Los Angeles? Do you really want the West Coast in a position to be menaced by this crazy person? The answer, I would say, is no. I don't think Trump did anything wrong. All right, coming back. Speaking of doing something wrong, a Google engineer gets fired for writing an anti-diversity memo. Did Google do the right thing? We will discuss next. It's 851 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 854. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It is a gorgeous day. Chase Anderson finally begins his rehab assignments and is set to rejoin the Brewers in the coming weeks. So who will he replace in the rotation? Greg Matzik says the answer isn't an easy one. I think it is. He'll explain why on Sports Central at 6.07 this evening. Okay, big story number two. Political correctness run amok or... Or a legitimate response by the company, Google, which is one of the the major, if you want to look at company valuations, you've got Apple, you've got Amazon, you've got Google, all right up there. All right, um, Google, based, of course, out of San Francisco, that whole Silicon Valley thing, Google has been struggling with a perception that um, they they are male dominated. Women only account for 31% of Google's workforce and 20% of its technical staff. So um, Google, like many companies in Silicon Valley, has been actively, actively trying to bring and promote, bring women in and promote women as, as an effort to try to obtain a more diverse workforce. All right. There is, there's a guy. He's 23, I'm sorry, he's 28 years old. He's worked at Google since 2013. Um, his name is James Damore. Got a really interesting background. Um, like many of the people that get hired at Google, the guy's got an incredibly deep and rich uh, background in um, academically. He um, studied molecular and cellular biology at the University of Illinois. He conducted research in computer biology at Harvard, Princeton, and the and MIT. Joined a Ph.D. program at Harvard. He dropped out when he got hired by Google. So he's worked for Google since 2013. He writes a memo, which he ends up posting on Google's internal mailing list. His 10-page memo is titled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber. And in this 10-page memo, he argues that there are differences between men and women, personality differences between men and women, 
that he says help explain why there are fewer women in engineering and leadership roles in the company. For example, he says that, that women have a lower tolerance for stress. He said, and I'm, I'm not saying I agree with that or not, but this is what the guy says. He says, efforts by the company to reach equal representation of women in technology and leadership are unfair, divisive, and bad for business. Essentially, he goes on to argue that what he thinks that the company should be is a meritocracy, where people are hired and promoted based on their abilities without regard to, to gender. All right? And he, he says some stuff which might I, 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 strikes to me as being incredibly stereotypical and perhaps unfair, but th- the guy works in the industry. This is the opinion that he expresses. So this memo circulates internally. People become outraged about it. Oh, this is terrible. How dare you criticize diversity in the workforce, blah de blah blah de blah The story and the memo then, of course, goes, I hate the phrase, goes viral because it's a cliche, but it goes viral. And it, it sparks this huge debate in the overall community. Um, most people saying they think the guy's all wet, but some people saying, you know, he, he, he's on to something. Um, even if you don't buy into the idea that there's differences between men and women that might make it more difficult for women as a general rule to succeed in this industry, nevertheless, um, the argument is, but regardless, it should be a meritocracy. You know, we, we, shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be striving for diversity at the expense of ability. All right, and so it sparks this huge debate. You can agree with the guy or not. Google's reaction, though, to the memo is to fire him. They say, hey, hey, look, you know, we think that this this memo, this has created a hostile work environment for women who work at, at Google. So um, also, we have a peer review process. And by you expressing these various thoughts, we think that now you can't participate in the peer, peer review process because we think you are inherently biased towards women. So they have now fired the guy. Now, I he's talking about a lawsuit. Typically, you can be fired for any reason or no reason. Um, the First Amendment protections that 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 doesn't really apply to that doesn't apply to private employees in the U.S. Uh, the First Amendment says you know the government can't stop your right to free speech. But he's been fired, and he's gone very very public saying I should not have been fired for saying these things. These are my opinions. It is a legitimate matter to discuss, and I've lost my job because of it. Okay, four one four seven nine nine one six. It's 9.09. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Let's reset the topic here. Um, Google, which is, of course, you know, one of the, I mean, one of the, as far as capitalization, one of the largest companies in the world, um, gets rocked the other day when you have a 28-year-old software engineer developer who puts out an internal memo that criticizes the company's diversity policy. The vast majority of people who work in the Silicon Valley area in this technology field are, are women, are men. Uh, it's about 70-30. Um, Google and many of the other companies have been actively trying to recruit, in the name of diversity, women. This guy puts out a 10-page internal memorandum where he challenges the diversity policy. And he says, essentially, he says, look, um, th- there are reasons why there are more men than women in this industry. And he says in many cases, and we're generalizing, you know, as a general rule, you know, men are more equipped to handle some of the demands. Now, I, 
it, it sounds to me like the guy's all wet. That would be my initial reaction. But, but, but again, I don't work in the technology industry. Anyways, he puts out this memo. Many people in the industry apparently agree with him. He says, look, I think this should be a meritocracy. I don't think we should have these aggressive diversity programs that promote people or hire people um, because of their gender. I think they should be hired based on ability, and there's a reason why more men than women work in this field. Again, I, I'm not taking any position on whether he's right or wrong. I, I don't work in the field, don't know enough about it. doesn't sound like it makes sense to me, but right or wrong, he puts this out there. Google responds by firing him. Google's response is, gee, this is essentially hate speech. By putting out a memo challenging our diversity program, you have created what is essentially a hostile work environment so that you know no women can work with you. We also have this peer review program where you know, we can't trust you to review women's work because you've demonstrated this hostility towards women in general. Now, one thing that people don't realize is that, that you have a First Amendment right to free speech, but as a general rule, that talks about the government restricting your right to speech. Can you go and you'll say something on a street corner? Typically, with the exception, uh, as a general rule, of, again, labor situations that might be protected, um, you, you know, employers... Employers don't have to acknowledge your free speech rights. You know, you can say stuff that they find to be offensive, and you can fire them. So if this guy decides he wants to sue, I think he's got a really, really tough case. So without regard to whether or not Google has the right to fire him, did Google do the right thing? by sacking him. And that's where my issue comes in. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does Google have a right to do it? Yes. But but was it the right thing? I mean, all he's doing is, again, challenging this company's orthodoxy, saying, hey, I, I think maybe we should be promoting and hiring people based on merit, and I question whether these diversity programs um, really do it. Now, again, the guy could be all wet, and, and he's probably wrong, but is this the type of thing that should have cost you your job? Okay, on our uh, email, Greg emails, isn't it supposed to be a free-thinking company? Don't they want to democratize information, or is it only information thoughts that they agree with? I don't understand why our society is so obsessed with basing employment, college admissions, etc., off of skin color or gender and not merit. We preach not being racist, yet implement anti-white or anti-male policies for hiring or admissions. Well, I, mean, I, I think that raises, again, th- this interesting point. The guy can be absolutely and totally dead wrong in, in what he's saying and the generalizations that he's making towards women. But, but by saying that, even just trying to raise the counter-argument, you, you, you lose your job? Really? Matt uh, emails me. Jeff, when I first heard about the firing, I had two thoughts. One, of course, Google has the right to fire the guy over this, and I I agree with that. Two, but where else does this come into play? I'm against the death penalty, and Google would probably approve of that. But I'm also pro-life, and I'm guessing Google would not approve of that. Could I be fired from from Google for being vocally pro-life? It gives the impression that there is an ideological litmus test at Google, and there's a greater than zero chance that one might lose their job if he or she does not pass the test. Exactly. That's what the concerns about this are. Like I say, the guy could be dead wrong. And if you had evidence that he was, for example, mistreating his coworkers, if you had evidence that in the peer review process he was unfairly discriminating against women, uh, of course, in that case you have to act. But merely raising 
raising the question about whether or not the diversity programs are will do what they are intended to do and be in the best interest of the company. Just to raise the question, you know, cost you your job. Um, let's see, our text line just exploded on this. Jeff, if the guys are fired for writing an anti-diversity memo, isn't that being anti-diversity on Google's part? Well, you can um, argue that. Penny and Germantown text, oh, the irony. Google has silenced the differing opinion in the name of diversity and inclusion. Yes, there is a degree of irony here. Um, you can argue that this is probably, it was probably ill-advised for him to do this. Why he decided to gratuitously do it, I, I don't know. And again, I, I think Google has the right to do it. But, you know, you just look at this and you say, oh, really, this is this is what we're going to do. If you dare to speak up against orthodoxy, even if you happen to believe it's right, maybe you're misguided, you're, you're going to lose your job. I think that's incredibly unfortunate. And again, I'm not, I take no position on whether this guy's right or not. seems to me he's kind of all wet by some of his statements he's saying. I think it is very difficult to generalize in this particular fashion. But at least it's a discussion. The idea that you can't even raise this question. How dare you can come out, how dare you come out and question our diversity program? To me, um, to me, that's, that is troubling. All right, uh, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Andy in Milwaukee. Andy, you're first. Good morning. Hi, Andy. I, I believe that uh, that the employee had the right to speak his mind, and mm-hmm. Google also had the right to terminate him. I agree. What he said. But I, and I don't think they did anything wrong based on the comment he made about Men being able to handle, I believe you said men being able to handle stress, responsibilities yeah. <laughs> better than women. I think stress, that, that yeah. creates a problem in the workforce uh, between him and his coworkers. When you say something like that, and that is a problem they don't need. Anything well, else that he said was, was legitimate. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, but whenever you, so are you saying that you think anytime somebody expresses an opinion, um, in, in a general sort of fashion that is arguably that forget arguably that is stereotypical that that's gonna that's gonna create an issue and, and he needs to be fired over that. Uh, I believe that he's predisposed as to how he's dealing with people in peer to peer situations based on mm-hmm. publishing those thoughts throughout the company. Yes, I, I do <laughs> think that that is detrimental to the to really the mindset and morale in the company when you have people. Publicly stating that in a memo. Um, well, yeah. Well, th- thanks for calling, Andy. I mean, c- clearly that is what Google that is what Google felt. Um, as far as I know, there, there's no evidence that he acted in a fashion that was discriminatory or belittling towards you know individual colleagues. He was just challenging the whole concept of, of diversity. And I guess I just think it's interesting now that you do have this conventional orthodoxy. I agree with you. Google has the right to fire him. And again, for people who think, well, I've got free speech rights, again, keep in mind, free speech rights as a general rule don't extend to the workplace. Did they have the right to do it? Yeah. But should he have written this type of stuff if he cared about his job? Probably not. But, you know, I, I bet you, I bet you if it was the flip side of this, if there was, for example, a woman who was writing a memo saying, you know, women are better qualified for certain positions than males, and males are getting these jobs ahead of us, 
my guess is that she would not have been fired for saying the same thing. That's just my guess. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, big thing number three, the New York Times, well, it was either a huge mistake or it was bias. Regardless, it is fake news. What's going on with the mainstream media? Stick around. It's 918. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 921, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Coming up in about 15 minutes. All right. They flipped the bird, and it cost them the tournament. We'll explain and discuss in just a couple minutes. But right now, big story number three. Um, Look, I understand that there's some people in in the media who really don't like the fact that President Trump has has launched this attack on, on, on the media. Fake news, all those different types of things. At the same time, I I have never seen a president for whom there has been more negative coverage in in my life. And I understand that the media, as a result, will be skeptical. But in this particular case, that the mainstream media, however you want to define that, the network TV shows, the newspapers, it's pretty much... It, it it really almost rises to the level of vendetta. There's a story there on any given day. There's five or six or seven stories, um, and and it's all it, the world is going to end because Donald Trump is the president. So and and of course the more the president fires back, the more the media. How dare you you question us? Well, here's the latest example of this. Um, the other day, the New York Times ran this hair on fire screaming story about how there was this report. The National Climate Assessment um, that was coming out, and the report, you know, talked about how climate change was going to destroy the country, the world. Okay, so that's the premise of the report. But the premise of the New York Times story, and the New York Times runs, it's this huge front-page report. They're talking about how the, the, the title is, Scientists Fear Trump Will Dismiss Blunt Climate Report. And it says we're the New York Times, and we've gotten I, we've gotten this the draft of the report that has not been made public, but a copy of it was obtained by us. We have this document, and there are unnamed sources, scientists who are afraid that the Trump administration is going to suppress this report because it doesn't go along with their theory of climate change. So follow me. That's the story. There's this report that's there. New York Times has access to it, and there's scientists who say it might never be made public, and, oh, isn't this awful? This is our exclusive. And then the Los Angeles Times runs editorials about this. Okay, all right, fine. Fine, fine as far as it goes, except there's one problem with it. The report that the New York Times claims to have exclusively obtained that they are concerned about the government suppressing, so it never sees the light of day. Well, um, the report, at least the preliminary version of the report, was posted online and has been available for several months. What happened, apparently, is that, you know, um, months and months ago, this was posted on, on various websites. Um, matter of fact, the Environmental Protection Agency had this report up on its website in 2000, in January of this year. And the idea was, it's available, there's a public comment period, anybody that wants can go and can look at this report, and then can offer comments on this, and then ultimately there will be the final report. Um, the, one of the guys 
who is one of the authors of the report. And again, it, it advances a theory that is different than the administration pushes. But one of the one of the authors of this says it's not clear what the news in this story is. The draft was posted in public um, back in Jan- December and January. Um, the, the review deadline is still there. They say um, also, you know, after the public comment period ended, they took down the draft, but it still remains online. Um, another one of the scientists who authored the report, and again, these are the authors of the report that are coming out with this theory that is different than the administration's. But the New York Times story was, hey, the president is, we've got this secret report, the president is suppressing it. One of the other authors says, um, it's important to point out that this report was already accessible to anyone who cared to read it during the public review and comment time. Few did. So again, the issue here isn't, do you agree with the merits of the report on the extent of climate change? The New York Times claims that the Trump administration was going to suppress this report, that they had obtained a copy of, and that people wouldn't have access to it, when in fact it had been publicly available on the Internet, posted on government websites back in January and December. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, to me, the, the issue here isn't, again, it's not the climate change report. Um, in this case, you have this breathless, heavy-breathing, anti-Trump story. The evil administration is going to, they're going to suppress this report. And the fact is, the report had been out there, at least the draft of the report, had been out there available for anybody to see for months and months. It wasn't an exclusive story. They rely on these anonymous sources who apparently nobody can figure out that this report has has in fact been made public, and it's not really a scoop. You didn't get anything that anybody else wouldn't have gotten had they gone to this particular website. Here's what I think the larger issue is. And that is, it is a question of trust. The mainstream media, however you want to define that, rebels when they hear the term fake news. Yet this story is a classic example of fake news. So here's what I want to discuss with you. It is my belief that you have journalists, you have TV stations, you have cable news stations, you have reporters who are so caught up in Trump derangement syndrome and are so caught up in their effort that they want to smear him at every chance they get that they are being, number one, sloppy, and number two, incredibly, incredibly biased. And every time they do this, it hurts their credibility more. So let's talk about the broad thing. Do you think you can still trust the mainstream media, 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 927. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 935. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Which Republican is best positioned to take on incumbent U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin next fall? One name frequently mentioned is State Senator Leah Vukmir. She joins John McCure live at 3.20 during Wisconsin's Afternoon News to address the rumors. John will, of course, be out here at the State Fair, so stop out and check that out. All right. Um, actually, I, I was talking to Steve Scafidi and Eric Bilstad about this story, and they're the ones that called my attention to it. I, I believe they discussed it in yesterday's program. I did not hear their discussion, but I, I think this is... I think it's sort of interesting because it raises a number of issues. 
All right. There is a girls, women's, young ladies softball team that is playing in the, the Little League World Series of softball. Um, the team is from Atlee, Virginia. All right. So what happens is they are involved in a very they're, – they're playing in the Little League World Series. They are involved in a very, very heated game against the team from Kirkland, Washington. Um, and this tournament is, is being held out in, in Washington State. So it's very, very heated. Apparently what happens is, you know, during the game, one player and a coach from the team from Kirkland, Washington, is ejected. There's allegations that they were stealing signs and things like that. So it was a, it was a, a very, very heated game. Anyhow, the team from the softball team, the girls' softball team, and these are 12 to 14-year-old girls. The, the girls' softball team from Virginia wins. All right, one to nothing. But again, it was a very, very contested game. People tossed out, very, very heated. Afterwards, afterwards, what happens is, you know, typically in these youth games, you know, everybody lines up and they shake everybody's hand. Good game, good game, good game. Well, that apparently happened, but a number of the girls pose for a photograph. The coach isn't in it. They pose for a photograph, and about a half dozen of them in the photograph, and these are 12 to 14-year-old girls, um, are, are seen, well, giving the one-finger salute, in, and it's, it's in the direction of the other team. So you've got about a half dozen of the girls that are, and this is they're trying to send a message, I guess, to the team that they just beat. All right, so they take this picture. One of them then posts it on Snapchat. And in response, um, the Little League says, all right, this is unacceptable. This violates our various codes of standards. And what we're going to do is we are going to um, essentially, we're, we're going to cause you to forfeit the game. You've won the game, but what we're going to do is we're going to say, all right, you, you, know, you can no longer participate. So they kick them out of the tournament. Um, and instead of playing in the finals, what they do is they reinstate the team that lost, and they let that team go on and participate in the finals. Ultimately, that team lost again. Um, the the coach from the Atley team, this is the team that took that picture, I mean, he's just absolutely outraged. He says, look, I, I understand. We've got kids, and this was an inappropriate thing. Nobody is saying that they're, they're not – nobody's saying that they did the right thing. And also, this is another one of these cautionary tales about the whole idea of, of social media. And yes, they should not have done it. But to suspend them, to cause them to forfeit the game, to disqualify them from the tournament, and allow the team that they beat to go on, which actually happened to also be the home team, was just completely and totally an overreaction. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, should the kids have been forced to forfeit the game for taking this photograph that clearly you know, contains some inappropriate behavior directed at the other team, the team that they had just beaten. Was it fair to cause them to forfeit the game that they had already won, or was this an overreaction on the part of Little League officials? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I never want to be in a position of condoning bad behavior, and this was, in fact, bad behavior. But in my opinion, complete and total overreaction to a situation. 
What do you think? We'll discuss. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, hold on. Should they have been disqualified for this photograph that was taken after the competition, at least after they had won the game? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 940. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 943, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. One coffee shop is trying to draw attention to the gender pay gap by levying attacks on all-male customers. Is this the best way to address a larger societal problem? Get the details and react with Scafidi and Billstad at 235 today, live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Let's start with Adam in Milwaukee. Adam, good morning. Hi, Adam. I love this show. Um, Thanks. Excited to see you later today. Um, Super. As far as those uh, softball girls go, I don't understand why the six of them weren't just suspended from the championship game. I mean, most of those championship teams have about 20 to 30 players that travel with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They still would have had enough people to play the next game. I mean, all these parents and all the money that the other families spent to get there and the the money that was raised, I mean, that's just all down the drain now. They work so hard. And all those other girls that missed out because of the actions of the other players. Now, does uh, so you would have just you would have just identified, and, and they know. I mean, the picture's out there. So you said, okay, there's four or five or six or however many. You you folks, you're going to be suspended, but we're not going to penalize the whole team. And you think that would be the right way to deal with it? I think so. I mean, they don't do it on the major league level. I mean, uh, if somebody gets a DUI, they don't suspend the whole baseball team. You know. Uh, no, they, they, they don't. They punish the one. Okay, thanks for the call, Adam. I appreciate it. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I You know, I, I just I, did what the kids did was wrong. And this is just another one of these examples of, of how um, in our social media, in, in the social media sense, this is how you end up getting in trouble. My guess is there have been other teams who have perhaps afterwards made similar sort of gestures towards their, their opposition. My guess is that this is not the first time something like this has happened. What makes this different is that it was posted on Snapchat, which, is, again, is a more limited sort of thing, but nevertheless, it, it's it's out there. It was posted in the media, and it was there for USA Today and the Associated Press to pick up and to see, which made it more of an issue. I get that. I guess the question, though, is, is it an overreaction to make the entire team forfeit the game? And I I think it was. I, I mean, I think it I think it really was. This was a heated game, contentious game. Other players on the other team were tossed out. Um, and, and I think what makes it even worse from a Little League perspective, at least in my opinion, is you take the team that's already lost and you say, okay, we're going to pretend you didn't lose. We're going to let you participate. And I do wonder whether some of that decision was based on the fact that the team that lost in the semifinals, um, they who actually had players that were thrown out for cheating, um, that they were the home team. 414-799-1620. Roger in Fort Atkinson. Roger, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, yes, I'm going to agree with the other caller that the players should have been suspended. Now, if it was a, a coach, yes, the whole team gets tossed. And, it, I mean, when you go into tournaments, and I've coached, and uh, you sign, you know, code of conducts. Sure. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, that's where it goes. Uh, you know, they... And if you don't have enough players uh, to play the next game, yeah, then you then you're out of the tournament. And then yeah, the other team you you beat gets to move on. Uh, right. That's just the way it is. 
but you would have you would have started off by saying, okay, the, the kids that are actually making the obscene gestures, they're the ones that go, and if there's enough players to play, then you continue on and you play. That's how you would have handled it. You wouldn't have automatically gone to, we're disqualifying the team. No, no, not at all. But I, I'm assuming besides the picture, there was probably uh, you know, some verbiage to, to go along with the picture. Yeah, now, of course, the, the, other, uh, the flip side of it, though, is that the, the other team, the team that lost, they had players that were ejected from the game for cheating. <laughs> I mean, do you, are, are you rewarding that bad behavior if you say, okay, you've lost the game, you had players and a coach that were thrown out for cheating, but now we're going to let you advance to the, the finals because these kids on the other team made an obscene gesture at you? Yeah, well, if you call stealing stealing signs, cheating, you know. Uh, well, that's what Little League yeah, did. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Got it. Okay, thanks for going. Okay, you, you, right. But, I mean, at least that's, I mean, that's what they did. They, they, they had players that were ejected and coaches that were ejected for what at least Little League would consider to be cheating, the, the whole idea of stealing signs. And I guess you make a fair point. Is that really cheating? But for Little League, yeah, it was. 414-799-1620. Andy in Waukesha, she writes, The punishment is very fair and necessary. This was not an overreaction. My boys play on tournament teams, and personal conduct on the field and in the dugout are of the utmost importance. I highly disagree with you on this one. Okay, well, that's that's um, that's fair, but here's the issue. That's actually from Katie in Waukesha. That, that's fair, but you're, you're not just throwing out you're not just throwing out the players that did it. So let's say you've got a situation where there's a kid in the dugout that yells something that's offensive or objectionable or whatever. Instead of just throwing out that player, you're going to disqualify the whole team. You, you just don't do that, do you? Um, Andy in Waukesha writes, I think they should have been disqualified. I played competitive fast pitch softball in grade school, high school, college, etc. I understand the time and money it took to get this team from Virginia to Washington, but sportsmanship and integrity is extremely important in Little League and in life. I understand the other team was dishonest or stealing signs, but it doesn't matter. It's irresponsible on their part. 414-799-1620. Mike in Germantown. Mike, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Um, yeah, I I, I agree with the last caller because uh-huh. you have to set the, you know, there is conduct, there is supposed to be conduct, there is integrity that's supposed to be there, and um, you're, you're learning as a team, you're playing as a team, so when the other teammates don't step up and, 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 uh, and be responsible for their actions, the whole team should. And that's how you learn as a team and play as a team. And that's mm-hmm. how you go through life, too. So let's let's take an example. Let let's let's turn it to like a basketball court. You have a player who on the basketball court, maybe a twelve-year-old playing in, in some you know AAU tournament, some tournament, whatever. Twelve or thirteen-year-old um, takes a cheap shot at one of the other team's players, knocks them down, says something inappropriate to them. Um, do you eject the player, or do you make the whole team forfeit the game? Well, you would eject the player because yeah. you're you're in the middle of you're you're in the middle of the game. Okay. But um, yeah, the other thing I'm saying I want to say too is the the, the losing team should have never been allowed to advance yes. because they did lose and they were cheating. Yep. So you, the standards should be set, and and that's why you have that the council, and that's why you have right. you know rules and regulations. And um, if we don't start teaching our young children today how to respond 
to negativeness or how to conduct themselves, you know, right. where is it going to lead? Now, and I think that's fair, Mike. And, and you raise an interesting point, too. I, I might I might have less trouble with this if, if you know, if, if you had, okay, the game is over. The team has won. They then engage in conduct that's unsportsmanlike or whatever, but it's, but it's after the game is over. If you had simply said, if Little League had simply said, okay, these, they're going to be disqualified, and thanks for the call, Mike, we're going to forfeit, they're going to forfeit, um, and that means that the team that was going to play them automatically wins. I think I might have less trouble with it, but I don't think Little League comes into this with clean hands because they, they wanted... They wanted a, a title game that was going to be shown on one of the TV channels, whatever TV channel was carrying this. The fact that the team that lost, even though they had people ejected for cheating, they were a home team, so you knew that people were going to come out and watch them. Um, this is it's, it's one of these deals where, I mean, I, think, I don't think Little League comes into this with in completely clean hands. The decision to say, okay, we're going to have this title game anyways, because otherwise you know, we're going to lose TV revenue or whatever. I mean, if they would have just said, all right, we're going to make a statement. We are going to suspend this team for misconduct after the game. All right, fine. That means they don't get to participate in the championship game. That means the one team wins. If they would have just done that, I might have I might have been more sympathetic. But they didn't. They took the team that lost. And, again, I think there was economic reasons for this as well. Bottom line is, I think we would all agree, it is a teachable moment. And I don't know how many people. I, I just, I still, it is just mind-boggling to me that people don't understand how the internet works it's just it's just mind-boggling to me that people decide okay this is going to be a good I- idea um it, you know it's it's one thing 25 years ago bunch of people get together after work you complain about you're over a beer you complain about your boss okay that that's fine nowadays you know, people uh, get together, and somebody's got a video, the group, complaining about their boss. Then they post it online, and you wonder, you know, why there's going to be consequences. What did you think was going to come out of that? I keep going back to the story about the, the, the Fox News personality, the latest one, and I, I don't know if it happened or not. He kind of quasi-denies it through his lawyer, but the guy's now been suspended because apparently several years ago, and we talked about this the other day, several years ago, allegedly, what he did is he took photos of his junk and decided to send them over to co-workers, female co-workers. Why you would do something like that, again, is just, and this is probably good, completely and totally beyond me. But it's this idea that you've got this Internet out there. Here, it's not just we're going to make an obscene gesture at uh, you know the other team. It's we're going to take a picture, and then we're going to save the picture, and then we're going to post it on the Internet. Um, this was clearly an expensive lesson, and unfortunately, no matter how many of these stories that come out, people just don't get the message. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, gun rights and foster care, and, all right, is Foxconn really as bad a deal as some might be suggesting? That's all coming up. It's 954. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. 
It's 957, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, they've caught him. A number of TV stations are reporting. 18-year-old Corleone Thomas, he is the man wanted in connection with the brutal beating of the woman during the attempted robbery and carjacking in that parking lot, uh, Pacific Produce on 27th and Grange. You will remember the story, um, 31-year-old woman going out to her car as she's trying to get into the car, allegedly 18 years old. This Corleone Thomas um, starts grabbing at her purse, has brass knuckles, starts punching her in the face while an accomplice of his, I think it's a 16-year-old girl, like eggs him on. Hit her, hit her, hit her. Ultimately, the woman is able to pull out. I think she had pepper spray in her purse, and she she squirts it. The guy is able to, to run off. They caught him yesterday. Greenfield police say he was arrested about 12.30 p.m. with help from Milwaukee officials in the Sheriff's Department, Glendale Police, and the U.S. Marshals. The investigators were able to identify the stolen vehicle that he was operating. 18-year-old kid who's punched a woman in the face with brass knuckles. He's driving a stolen vehicle. They locate it near First and Beecher. The vehicle flees when officers attempted to stop it, resulting in a pursuit. Presumably, they chased him because, oh, yes, he had committed a crime of violence. He had punched this woman in the face with brass knuckles. The pursuit ended near 22nd and Villard when the stolen vehicle crashed into a curb. Corleone then runs away. They ended up catching him. Vehicle used by law enforcement was... um, damaged in this now channel 12 is the only one that's reporting this and i i didn't see it when i looked when i tried to pull up his criminal record um on circuit wisconsin circuit court access but of course he's 18 you know i don't know but it would be interesting to see what the guy's juvenile record was but channel 12 reporting he was arrested last august after a stolen car he was in slammed into a light pole in west dallas he skipped out on his bail in april and a warrant was issued for his arrest Once again, another one of these situations where people that presumably should not be on the street are out on the street committing more crimes. What is it going to take for the Milwaukee County court system to wake the heck up? It's 959. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 10.08, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It is a Chamber of Commerce Day. I was just saying, it's just absolutely beautiful and if you look at the weather forecast for the remaining today and the remaining four days of the fair a little bit of rain tomorrow but certainly not a washout um just looks absolutely gorgeous um and so come on out stop by and say hi i was listening to doug's report about the brewers i I, i'm a huge baseball fan i am and i just I, i try to be a glasses half full guy so i mean i guess there's two ways of looking at it they are even with all their struggles after the all-star break you know, they, they blew the five-and-a-half game lead. Um, they're still only a game-and-a-half behind the Chicago Cubs. So if you're a glasses-half-full guy, you say, hey, you're only a game-and-a-half behind the Chicago Cubs. That That's great. Um, the, the flip side is they're only two games ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates who are in fourth place. So, I mean, it's it, – it's, yeah, you can catch up to the Cubs, but you can also very quickly find yourself in, in fourth place. They're only a game ahead of the Cardinals, two games ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it, the truth of the matter is I keep telling myself that this is a rebuilding year. Um, they are probably a 500 team. They overproduced early on, and now they're kind of coming back to reality. And um, some of these players who had these great starts probably, you know, aren't really that great. And But, you know, you, you want to be supportive and you hope they win. Wouldn't it be nice if they could figure out a way to go off, uh, okay, you've got this homestand coming up, you know, you'll you run off eight wins and then in a row and see where it goes. But 
Um, so far, they, they got to turn themselves around. But 59 and 56, a game and a half behind the Chicago Cubs. Having said that, the last couple nights were tough to watch. Um, had the games on. The way I, I watch the games on TV, and I have I have the our, our broadcast on as, as well, whether it's Euchre or not. I just I think the guys do a great job. Um, last night, after Garza gave up the grand slam, just had to had to turn the channel. Couldn't help myself. All right, I have been waiting all morning to discuss this story with you because it is very very interesting. Um, there is a couple in Michigan um, who have been requested by the Department of Social Services in Michigan to become foster parents for their grandson. Um, the grandson has been removed from his mother's care for whatever reasons, okay? Removed from his mother's care. So the, the foster care system, they go to the grandparents and they say, hey, we would you would you take over? Would you raise the child? Um, this couple, their their last name is Johnson. Um, interesting background. Um, they live in Northwest Michigan, kind of by Lake Superior. Um, Bill, that's the the husband. He's a disabled veteran. Jill, that's the wife. She owns a fishing fishing tackle shop. Um, uh, let's see. Guns are a part of of their life. You know, Bill, that's the the granddad. He says, you know, he he learned to shoot from his grandfather when he was nine years old. Big hunter. Um, They apparently he joined the Marines at 17. He was issued an assault rifle. He says they have about nine guns around the house, including including a handgun that he has a concealed carry permit for. So they've got nine guns around the house. What they say is that, you know, all the guns are are kept locked away in, you know, very in cases and the cabinets, except the gun that he carries on a regular basis, on a daily basis, with his, his permit, his concealed carry permit. Okay, so that's that's the background of this. Um the Michigan folks, they say, Okay, we want you to be foster parents for the grandchildren, but for your grandchild. But Here's the catch. We, under Michigan law, you are not allowed to have a concealed carry carry a gun legally or otherwise. So the fact that you have, you, you can have firearms in the house, you can have the hunting rifles, you can have the guns, but as a condition of being a foster parent, you are not allowed to have the, the gun that you carry on a concealed basis. And I guess the argument would be, if you're carrying the gun, theoretically, the foster child might have access to the gun, so it could endanger the child's safety. So what's happening is that this couple says, hey, look, we we would love to take responsibility for our grandchild, but you're making us give up what is our legal and our constitutional right to carry this firearm, and we think that is wrong. Now, everybody, like I say, would understand that if if you're going to have if you're going to be a foster parent, you know there needs to be perhaps some restrictions. You don't want guns lying around the house. But in this particular case, they're saying if you've got a concealed carry permit, if you're a concealed carry permit holder, you are not allowed to be a foster parent unless you give up that that uh, right. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Does this law make sense? Is this reasonable? 
I, I admit, I was reading the story in the New York Times, and I, I kept thinking, really? I mean, I understand where, from the perspective of any parent, particularly a foster parent, you, you know, you want to make sure that if kids are coming into your house, you want to make sure that you have firearms that are not accessible to the kids. I, I understand that. But in this particular case, they assume that because you are a concealed carry permit holder, that automatically is going to pose a danger to the foster child, and it makes you unacceptable. I think that is ridiculous. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should concealed carry permit holders be allowed to act as foster parents? In Michigan, they say no. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 1014. This is Jeff Wagner. If you're on the line, please hold on. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Stick around. It's 1016, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, a, a, a couple in Michigan have been asked to be the foster parents for their grandson. The dad, the granddad, is a disabled military veteran. Mom runs a, a fish and tackle shop. They are both avid outdoorsmen. They are hunters. Um, also, dad has a concealed carry permit. He's had it for the last, granddad has had this for the last 10 years. They have guns in the house. All the guns, ammunition is kept separate. The guns are kept under lock and key, except the handgun that dad, the granddad, regularly carries with his concealed carry permit. Michigan is saying you cannot be a foster parent if you have a concealed carry permit and you carry the gun. Is it fair to make granddad give up his right to conceal carry a firearm um, in order to essentially help out his grandson and be the foster parent? 414-799-1620. Jim in Menominee Falls. Jim, good morning. Jim. Okay, lost Jim. Peter in Ripon. Peter, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, hi, Jim. Hi. I'm going to have to agree with the Michigan law on this one. Okay, tell me why. I would say if uh, if the granddad really and truly wants to be a foster parent, he should be able, he could give up his right to uh, firearms or to conceal and carry. Whereas well, I, I see why. No, I see why. Because I mean, if you feel like you've got to carry around a gun all day, I mean, who? Why? Why do you have to carry a gun around all day? You have enemies. You have people coming after you. I just feel it's for the safety of the kids, Don. That's my opinion on it, Jim. Well, okay, but th- thanks for the call, Peter, but I guess that, that makes no sense to me. I mean, it's why do you feel you have to carry Well, I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know why he feels he has to carry it. It might be that he just wants to carry it. It might be that he just makes the the choice of of carrying that. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, you have to do it in a responsible fashion. I mean, I understand. If the rule said you have to make certain that the firearm is in a position where it's not accessible to the kid, I I get all that. I understand that. But this idea that merely because you have a foster child, um, that that's going to pose some sort of danger. I mean, yes, you are absolutely right that, you know, he if he wants to be if he wants to do the right thing for his grandson, yes, he could give up his right to the concealed carry uh, firearm. But my question would be, you know, why why do you have to do this? Okay, we've got Jim back. Jim, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Yes, um, I, I'm actually a foster parent. And mm-hmm. they when I was 
got my license, they told me that um, we couldn't have any firearms. And the reason why it's not, it isn't about the permit. It's about it might be a trigger for the children if they are around those type of weapons. You mean if they were around guns in the first place? If they were around guns, it, it, depending on what the circumstances are for why they were removed from their home, um, it could pose as a trigger where they would um, start acting out. And so maybe that's why they don't want them to have a firearm or a concealed carry permit. But I was told I couldn't have any firearms for the protection of the children. It, because it might serve as a trigger to them. Yes. Yeah. I guess I mean Jim. I, I thanks for the call. I, and again, I, I'm I'm trying to qu- really quickly put my finger on on what the Wisconsin law is on this. Whether if you want to be a foster parent, you have to give up your right to have any firearms at all. And I don't know off the top of my head. I'm trying to put a handle on it. But I, I guess my response would be, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I mean, all right. If you've got, for example, if you've got a, a child who might be particularly, because of the child's individual background, might be particularly sensitive to firearm sort of issues. Okay, maybe in that case, placing them with foster parents who are hunters or whatever, maybe, you know, somebody might decide that's not the best thing. But to have a blanket policy which would say that, hey, you know, I mean, hunting, look, I mean, if that's really the case, how many families, I mean, this is a hunting state. Are we really going to say to all the people that keep firearms, hunting rifles, for example, around the house or target shooting or whatever, that you're not going to be suitable to be foster parents because it could be some sort of like trigger? That to me makes absolutely you know no sense at all. Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. It is very reasonable, once I, again, I think it's very reasonable to say, in this case to Granddad, all right, look, if there's going to be guns around the house, you have to make sure that the firearm is not going to be accessible to, in this case, your grandson, who would be, you know, you would be the foster parent for. Obviously, I mean, I don't know how old the kid is. Let's say the 10 or 12 years old. You don't want Grandpa leaving a loaded gun on the kitchen table so the kid can get access to it. But as long as you come up with a plan that says, all right, this is where the firearm's going to be. Um, yes, I, I carry this around on a regular basis, but, 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 the kid's not going to get it. It seems to me that that should be the end of the conversation. Jim in Elkhart Lake. Jim, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, I, I, I think the, that that law is ridiculous. If it's a senior citizen, especially a disabled senior citizen, disabled veteran like that man is, they're easy targets for criminals. I mean, you're walking along and you're you're moving along slowly and stuff like that. You're a very easy target. I'm sure he's keenly aware where he is and why he needs to carry. I'm sure he doesn't just carry the gun all day at his own home. I'm sure he just uses it when he goes out. And uh, I don't believe that that should be a criteria for grandparents yeah. or a criteria for any responsible citizen. Okay. Uh, yeah. Again, again, you have to 
certify that that citizen's responsible. I mean, sure. you look at them and things along that line. Well, sure, and, and, and you look at the House, and I mean, and you said, I mean, I can certainly understand putting in different restrictions with the whole idea of, look, you know, we, we don't want the kids getting access, and, and that's, I think, perfectly reasonable, but my guess is that you would do that before you would do any sort of foster placement, you know, making sure that, again, there, there's reasonable things that are going on. Now, thanks for the call. Now, I, I, I'm, I was, I'm trying to quickly look at this, and I, I don't. I'm not sure. I have the most recent version of the law in Wisconsin. What I'm seeing is that um, foster parents are allowed to keep weapons, but have to keep them out of the reach of children with specific safety measures spelled out. Now, I don't know if that's changed since I've been able to pull that up. But I mean, to me, I think that's again, that's a that is a reasonable sort of requirement. You want to keep the firearms away from. The, the kids, but you would want to do that under any circumstance, and maybe if there is a situation where you have, um, um, okay, well, let's see, except is allowed in Part D, no loaded firearm may be kept in a foster home, no unloaded firearm or other dangerous weapon may be kept in a foster home unless stored and locked in an area not readily accessible to foster children. So it has to be um, un unloaded ammunition shall be stored and locked separately from weapons. So, okay, that's one of the restrictions that you have there. I mean, I understand that that requirement, you want to keep unlo- you want to keep loaded guns away from the kids. Um, but at the same time, how that plays out with concealed carry, in this particular case, yes, the grandparents can give up their right to concealed carry, but should they have to? It's 1024. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Ten thirty-five. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Is Coach Mike McCarthy planning to sit quarterback Aaron Rodgers in tomorrow's preseason opener? Doug Russell has the latest from training camp in the Packers section of WTMJ.com and on your WTMJ app. Uh, during the break, I actually I pulled up. We were talking about this rule in Michigan that says you can't be a foster parent if you have a concealed carry permit and carry a firearm. I actually I pulled up the statute in Wisconsin. It really doesn't address concealed carry. Um, here's what it says. No unloaded firearm or other dangerous weapon may be kept in a foster home unless stored and locked in an area not readily accessible to foster children. Okay, that makes sense. Ammunition materials and firearms shall be stored in a separate locked area, shall be stored in separate locked areas that are not readily accessible to foster children. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. I think that's kind of an ordinary requirement. That doesn't really address, um, you know, the whole issue of concealed carry, it really relates to how you handle storage of the firearms. So that answers that. All right. Here, here's the story. We, we were talking about something yesterday, that I, and I found the, the reaction from the majority of people who texted me or called, I felt was an interesting reaction. It was the story of the warden and the assistant warden from one of the Wisconsin prisons, actually they were from separate prisons, who went on a fishing trip to, what was it, Ohio. Go on a fishing trip to Ohio. There is a bag limit as to the number of walleyes you can take on a particular day. I think it was six. So they go out in the morning, and they catch their limit. So then they go back, they have lunch, they go back in the afternoon, and they catch more fish. Okay, So they've knowingly and intentionally violated the law with regard to taking fish. They get caught. They pay a $400 or $500 fine. Now, they were on vacation, 
on their own time, they caught too many fish. Right? Not defending that, not justifying it, nothing. Um, then they are, I mean, wardens, I mean, it's a quasi-law enforcement type of thing. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're administrators, they're the state employees, they're in the correctional system. So they come back, and it gets out that they have been caught, you know, doing what they did, taking too many fish. Um, so there is an investigation, and because they're supervisors, because they violated the law in Ohio, what happens is the two guys get sat on the bricks for three days, suspended for three days without pay. Um, I, I always pose this as kind of the Goldilocks question. You know, is, it, is the penalty, is it too hot, is it too cold, is it just right? I think it was just right. I mean, I, I think it was... I think it was just right. Obviously, you know, that they violated the law. You want to set an example, all those different types of things. And I'm not minimizing the fact that it was fish, but, but okay, they caught too many fish, all right? They paid the fine, all right, some. Now, some people thought it was too light, but the vast majority of my callers and emails not only said that they thought, they thought that the penalty was too light, a number of people argued that they should have been fired. I mean, seriously, they should have been fired. They took too many fish. They violated the law. They should be fired. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, you have these people who have been working out no disciplinary records. This is something they do on their vacation. They took too many fish, again, without minimizing it, and you seriously want them fired. And I will tell you the vast majority of the input I had was from people who exactly that. They wanted them fired, which, with all due respect, I thought was silly. All right, so here's... Here's a related story. There's a guy. He is he's the district attorney for Florence County. Florence County is well a couple of weeks ago we had this conversation about what is up north. Re- regardless of how you define up north, Florence County is up north. June 8th, he is pulled over by police outside Iron Mountain in the UP. So he's the Florence County District Attorney. He's driving in the Upper Peninsula. He is stopped. Um, They run a blood alcohol thing. He apparently has a blood alcohol concentration of .10. Legal limit is, of course, .08. So he was over the legal limit just slightly, if that makes any difference in our discussion. But it's not like he was blind drunk. He was over the legal limit, but just slightly. So he, he has a .10. He was um, sentenced. Apparently he was, he was convicted. Uh, and I don't know if it was a guilty plea or a no-contest plea. But um, first offense, impaired driving in Michigan, is a criminal misdemeanor. So unlike Wisconsin, where it's the equivalent of a traffic ticket, it is a criminal misdemeanor. He apparently, according to the reports, apologized to the court and the community for his poor judgment. Um, he was sentenced at the end of July, so la- July 31st, six months probation, 12 days of community service by a judge from Marquette, Michigan, um, after Iron Mountain judges um, recused themselves because they know him. He works just across the border. This is Florence County. So here you have the guy, he's convicted, it's a criminal misdemeanor, um, but 
He's essentially on probation for six months, 12 days of community service, and then I assume that there's other sort of ancillary things that come with getting convicted of drunk driving in Michigan, like there's all sorts of ancillary things that come with getting convicted of drunk driving in Wisconsin. So here you have it. He's elected. He is elected, but theoretically a governor could remove him for misconduct in office. Here's what I want to discuss with you. What should, if anything, what else would ha- should happen to this district attorney. Now, um, because the offense is a crime in Michigan, the report I'm looking at says that he's going to be required to report himself to the Wisconsin Office of Lawyer Regulation um, and in all likelihood, what he's going to get is a private reprimand. You know, don't do this. Don't do this again. Um, but I don't think there's going to be any action to pull his license to practice law. I would be shocked if anything like that happens. But just just from your perspective, here you have the district attorney in Florence County gets busted for driving slightly over the legal limit. Should he resign? Should he be forced out of office? I mean, a number of people thought these wardens should be fired for taking too many fish. What should happen to the DA? And again, he's an elected official, so there's really nobody to fire him. I guess the governor could try to remove him for misconduct. Or, you know, maybe he should just resign. Say, hey, I've been caught. I was over the limit. I'm sorry. I don't think I can do my job anymore. What should happen to the DA who got busted for driving while intoxicated? Slightly over the limit but still over the limit nonetheless. Anything Does anything more need to be done than what is already being done? Probation, fine, community service. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you where I come down on this, but you know your reaction. Should he be out of a job because of this? What do you think? First defense drunk driving, if that matters too. 1043, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1046, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. A particularly attractive crowd gathering here, always say that. Um, All right, here's the story. The DA um, from Florence County was elected, I I don't know how many terms he served. His his term runs through 2020. Um, Florence County borders the Upper Peninsula. He gets busted for drunk driving in uh, the Upper Peninsula, um, he's slightly over the limit, just slightly. It's point one. The legal limit is point zero eight. He either pleads no contest or guilty to the charge. It's a criminal misdemeanor. He um, is sentenced to six months probation, 12 days of community service. I assume that there's also a fine or something else involved with that. The question is, does anything else need to happen? Uh, there, there's nobody. He's elected, so there's really nobody to fire him. I mean, the governor could theoretically remove him. But I guess the question becomes, should he should he resign? Does this drunken driving conviction make him unsuitable to serve as the district attorney? I'll tell you where I think in just a minute, but let's uh, take a couple calls. Let's start with Jeff and Racine. Jeff, you're first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Hey, hey, generally, I think the people in in the public sector should face the same penalties and sanctions as people in the private sector. No, No more, no less. But where I make that exception is with people in law enforcement. And the reason I say that is how how can they be trusted to enforce the law or prosecute the law when they use, when they can't be trusted to obey them? 
Well, I guess my question would be, the guy's 58 years old, no prior criminal record. I don't know what the circumstances are, but you, you, you go to the fish fry, you have one too many beers. Does that mean that that one split-second bad decision, and it is a very bad decision, that means you think that the guy who has 30 years of, I don't know, let's say 20, 30 years of law enforcement experience, that means he can't be trusted to enforce the law? Well, the problem is, is he's going to be prosecuting law or uh, drunken yep. driving cases. Yep. So there's a huge, to me, there's a huge conflict of interest there now. Well, but I mean, the fact that he's been through this, does that arguably give him, I don't know, more compassion, more understanding as to how to to do this? I mean, I I guess if he tried to badge his way out or try to avoid responsibility, I would see it. But you would say just the simple fact that he got caught breaking the law in this case, that in and of itself means he should step down. Kind of a slippery slope, but uh, I think so. I think okay. should step down. Okay. okay, thanks for the call, Jeff. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll share my thoughts in just a minute on this. Uh, Christopher in Greenfield. Christopher, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Um, Hi. I agree with that. I agree that just like teachers and truck drivers, they you know, they drive. Teachers teach the students. They get called. Yeah, but te- well, let, like, I, well, truck drivers are different, but let me stop you on teachers. Teachers, uh, a teacher who gets busted for drunk driving is not going to lose their job. Matter of fact, there's teachers who get busted for multiple drunk drivings who don't lose their job. So a, a, a teacher's not going to lose his or her job simply, again, getting caught for drunk driving. Now, you know, if, you, if you're with a bunch of kids, you know, in a school car, it might be different. But I'm sorry, go ahead, make your point. And at the same time, it's like the, the two warrants that they got caught fishing with the people wanted to fire fire them but yet they didn't they got you said they got suspended three day suspension without pay yeah. and then they paid their fine yep people want to say fire them but yet this guy got caught drinking driving i mean if he had a little bit too much drink and he knows it call a taxi cab or yeah. something to take him back to the place what makes it okay for him to drink drive and not do ever do this crime, but when we do it, it's all we get on our record. Okay, well, well, Christopher, thanks for the call. Now, I I mean, I want to be real clear here. Nobody is, and thank you for joining us, nobody is saying it's okay to do what what he did. He's not saying it's okay. He he apologized for this. He he was convicted. He's got to pay his fine. He's got to do his community service. He's going to be on probation. So it's not like he, he got off. The question becomes to me, how do you end up treating him? And do you, for, look, here's the realities. For most people, I mean, commercial truck drivers, yes, you have a zero tolerance thing, and you get nailed for drunk driving, you're going to be, you're going to lose your job in all likelihood because you're going to be uninsurable. But generally speaking, for most people, if you get caught first offense drunk driving on your own time in your own car, you are in all likelihood not going to lose your job unless again maybe you have if you have a job that requires you to drive and you you don't have your license you're, you're not you're not going to lose your job most law enforcement people you know first time drunk driving again if you're not on duty you're not in the state car or the government car you're not going to lose your your job over over this particular thing um, I guess I look at this and I just I mean I understand that we, we live in this world where the, there's there's absolutes 
But this is a particular situation where it seems to me that this guy, he happens to be Republican, but I don't care about that. I mean, this idea that, okay, you have to have this absolutism, and he's not going to be able to theoretically do his job because, you know, he got caught having the one too many beers or whatever this is. And I'm not minimizing what he did, but it seems to me... You know, you, you've got to stand up. You've got to, you know, take the consequences of this. But I guess feel free to disagree. But I, I see, I see no reason for him to have to resign. I, I don't think this means he can't enforce drunk driving laws. Um, I, I think it's just, hey, he's an example of the stuff that ends up happening here. Now, by the way, he's an elected official. So, I mean, ultimately, if he decides to run for re-election, the voters get to decide one way or the other. Let me go back a few years. For those of you who have an institutional memory, you will remember the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin. Her name was Peg Lautenschlager. Peg got caught. She was driving a state car that she put into a ditch while intoxicated. She did not resign. Now, what ended up happening is she ran for re-election. She was a Democrat, got beat in the Democratic primary by an opponent who made this drunk driving thing the the issue. So, um, you know, ultimately, I guess the voters get to decide how big a deal this was. But in the case of the attorney general, she was she was in a state car. Um, She was I guess there was always this question. She was using it to commute between Madison and her home at the time in Fond du Lac. And, and again, so in this case of this guy up in Florence County, he, he wasn't in a government car. He wasn't on state time. He was on his own time. He got caught. I'm not minimizing drunken driving at all. He deserves whatever penalties he ends up getting. But at the same time, it's also not like he... Now, you change the facts a little bit. You say, hey, Jeff, if this guy, while he was drunk, you know, ran off the road and hit and killed somebody, well, that's a whole different story. And I'm not minimizing drunken driving. I'm just saying, first offense, I don't think he needs to resign. If the voters decide they want to toss him out... Oh, okay, that, that's fine. Then the voters get to toss him out. That's what Laurie says. He's owning up to it. He's taking responsibility. Let him take his lumps, be an example to the community, and then let him be. Um, it is a mistake. Tom in West Bend says, Jeff, do your callers realize how many police officers, firefighters, and other government workers have had a first-time drunk driving conviction? They are all human. Others in the private sector very rarely lose their jobs because of it. They should be treated no different than anyone else. Punishment should be no less and no more than anyone else. Um, Andrew in Greenfield says, he's paying for his crime already. It's not like he's getting away with anything. Why is the legal punishment not enough? You're talking about supplementing the law with additional penalties. Yeah, I guess that's that's kind of what I look like. I mean, unless there's something about this that says that the guy can't do his job, I think the conviction in and of itself is not a basis to remove him. But regardless, the voters get to decide a couple of years down the line. It's 1055. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Well, you learn something new about people all the time. Um, I'm broadcasting live from the State Fair, so I was talking to my producer, BD, who's down the road back at the station. And I said, hey, are, are you, I was going to ask him a question based on the Packers. I said, are you a Packers fan? He said, no, I'm a Lions fan. And I said, did you grow up in, like, Detroit? He said, no, I grew up in Kenosha. So, okay, how could you grow up in Kenosha? I mean, a Bears, I might understand. But how could you grow up in Kenosha and be a Lions fan? And then I got some convoluted explanation of how, well, I was originally a Packers fan, but then the Lions were on every Thanksgiving, and I became a passionate Lions fan, which made absolutely no sense to me at all. But I guess, I guess 
There's crazier ways that people could be Lions fans, but, but I'm not going to hold it against him. He's a nice young man doing a good job. But I can't get to ask him the question I was going to ask him, which is uh, yesterday the Packers announced that Latroy Guyon let go. Now, I make this as a follow-up to what we were talking about, about the DA and drunk driving. I want to be consistent here. It's way was way past time for the Packers to, to drop Latroy Guyon. The guy was a train wreck. I believe that character does matter. And, I mean, it's not just he's gotten dumped for his most recent arrest for drunk driving in Hawaii. Remember, this is the guy who's been suspended for abuse of performance-enhancing drugs. This is the guy who gets busted in his hometown what in Florida with a bag of dope, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash, and a gun. And ends up skating on it largely because he's a professional football player. I mean, we talk a lot about character counting, you know, and for plays for teams particularly that aren't the Cowboys, I mean, teams like the Packers. Well, I mean, it was tough to listen to anybody in the Packers, with all due respect, talk about how character matters when you had a guy like Latroy Guyon, who might be a wonderful teammate and might be an outstanding guy, but the fact is the man is a train wreck who doesn't apparently think... It's 11.09. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Give yourselves a round of applause, everybody. There you go. Okay. See, a particularly attractive crowd. Lady in the Key West. I'm going to Key West in uh, February. So I'm, that's my that 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 that's my plan. If you're going to go to Key West, you got to go there. Hey, somewhere, I, I, just, I want to throw in a plug. We're at the State Fair. It runs through Sunday, of course. But if you're in the northern part of our listening area, I, I'm, I'm not going to make this this year, but I'm kicking myself. Um, this weekend... It's Burger Fest in Seymour, Seymour, Wisconsin, which is kind of by Green Bay. It's the home of the hamburger, and they have like a balloon thing on Friday. And on Saturday, I mean, they, they turn they, they, they turn the town over, and it's the world's largest hamburger parade. But the, the, the highlight is they, they have a 200-pound cheeseburger that they end up cooking. I know the guy that's cooking the 200-pound cheeseburger. You know, I, I just and you know, matter of fact, he was kind enough to say to me, "Hey, if you want to come up and help," and I, I mean, I want no part of trying to cook a 200-pound cheeseburger, but just the whole process of lifting it. They, I've been quizzing about how you do it, and I'm not going to be able to make it up there this year, but some year. I'm getting to Burger Fest. It is in Seymour this weekend. I am told it is quite the event. All right, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. Latest information about Foxconn. Let me be real clear here. I am a huge advocate of Foxconn. Foxconn is, of course, the giant international company that has announced that it is going to locate a U.S. facility in Wisconsin. Um, the plan is that there's going to be a facility that's going to be built somewhere along the freeway in either Kenosha or Racine County. Now, in order to get Foxconn to come here, the state taxpayers, that's you and me, we're going to be shelling out over the course of the agreement, over the course of 15 or 20 years, we're going to be paying up to about $3 billion in incentives to get them to come here. Um, the report today, or actually yesterday, was that it is going to, now you've got to hear me out because it's, it's sort of misleading, that it's going to take 25 years for the, the state to get the $3 billion in payments back from Foxconn in taxes. And part of the reason for that is we we don't tax 
we, we charge manufacturers very, very little tax, so they're not going to pay that much tax. But the argument is, hey, it's going to take 25 years to recover this money. This means it is a bad investment. That's what the argument is. Now, that argument is accurate but somewhat misleading because it focuses solely on tax collection. Here, here's another way of looking at this. Over the years, the taxpayers are going to be fronting $3 billion to bring Foxconn in. Foxconn, in the first couple years, is going to be spending 10 B as in billion dollars, B as in billion dollars, to build their plant and their infrastructure. So, you know, let's forget about taxes. Forget about taxes for a minute. You would be talking about $3 billion over time for an immediate 10 B as in billion dollar investment into the state. Of that $10 billion, they estimate that somewhere between 6 and $7 billion is going to go to Wisconsin companies to help build the facilities. So now, I think if you took a step back and I said to you, I tell you what, um, I'm going to give, tell you what, if I give you $3, will you give me 10 And I think most people would say, well, what's the catch here? No, 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 I'm going to give you 3 you give me 10 most people would say yes. If I said I'm going to give you three bucks and uh, you give me seven back, um, most people would say, "Well, wait, why would I? Why would I do that?" That's what Foxconn is doing. Apart from the whole tax thing, you have a situation where yes, we are fronting money to get there, providing incentives. But you know they're coming along. They're going to spend ten billion dollars up front. In addition. What they estimate is they will be hiring workers. Not all of the workers are going to obviously come from Wisconsin. A lot are going to come from Wisconsin. Some might live in Illinois. My guess is some are going to come from all over the country and relocate here. And they estimate that um, that's going to generate, over the course of this agreement, somewhere in the neighborhood of $10.5 B as in billion dollars in new payroll. So that's workers that are being hired and workers that are being paid to do the jobs. That's like $10.5 billion. So it is true, if you just look at purely the taxes that are going to be repaid, there's a 25-year payback period, if you just look at the taxes. But that, of course doesn't include the jobs that are the factor in the jobs that are created it doesn't factor in the Foxconn investment of billions of dollars to build the plant and it doesn't factor into the payroll that's generated so people you know have jobs and work so now the headline is well you know it's going to be 25 years to to get the payments that go to Foxconn back through the taxes but of course the interest in Foxconn is much more than that Governor Walker, I mean, he, you know, he said this to me a while ago. You know, he's talking about this as being transformative. He says that the value of Foxconn is so much more than just the payback period that's theirs. He said, you know, it's going to be just a huge net gain from the workforce. And so the way of looking at it is just to look at, gee, how much in taxes are they going to pay and how long is it going to take them to pay back $3 billion? And, of course, they only get the $3 billion if they meet all their different hiring goals. But while the tax repayment period is something to look at, I guess I just think that's so short-sighted because that's only one part of the deal. 
414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. But, I mean, th- this is the latest headline. Oh, it's going to take 25 years just to get the money in taxes. This means it's a bad deal. I, in all honesty, I just think that's just not the way to look at this because Foxconn coming, bringing three, five, seven, ten, thirteen thousand jobs, and all the other ancillary development. That's the big picture of this. What do you think? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Curly in Germantown. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Uh, all this thing about the three billion dollars. This is $3 billion that's not coming out of the coffers right now. It's money that we don't have and we wouldn't collect because Foxconn would decide not to come. The only money coming out of our pockets is what we're paying for any infrastructure like uh, extra police or uh, roads or whatever. So if Foxconn wouldn't come, we wouldn't have to be spending $3 billion that we don't have or would never collect. People don't realize this. It's not coming out of our pockets. Right, 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 exactly. It's essentially being fronted and with the idea that it's going to be being paid back. I guess I just look at this and say, does anybody really believe we would be better off if this company wasn't bringing 13,000 jobs or 5,000 or however many brings, plus all the other attendant stuff? I mean, do, do we really think... Do we really think that we wouldn't be better off if they we would be better off if they weren't coming? If they weren't coming, we wouldn't be collecting that taxes, and we wouldn't have right. to front it. So this three billion dollars is just bogus because uh, we're just giving them a, a hand on it. Right. Exactly. And we wouldn't collect it. You know. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you. No, thanks for the call. Plus, we immediately lose the, the money that they are going to be. That they are going to be immediately putting into the company, into the state, with all the different types of construction things. I mean, if you want to look at it on a much smaller scale, look at what is going on in downtown Milwaukee with the, the building of the new Bucks Arena. Um, and again, that's I, I think I was a fan of the arena. I'm glad that we're building the new facility, but that's not going to have anywhere near the long-standing economic impact that you know a large company like this is going to have and the permanent jobs. But you just look at all the construction workers. I mean, try to drive around where the arena is, and you know the roads are all blocked. You know, you have you have people jobs. You have people that are being employed. They are working. They are doing things. They are building stuff. And if you think that that's been a great boon for the local economy, and it has, the construction workers and stuff, well, okay, Foxconn is going to be the Bucks Arena on steroids. Hal in Milwaukee. Hal, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Uh, I think we've missed the biggest picture of all. If one company as big as Foxcom is taking a look at Wisconsin and definitely wants to come here, uh, maybe another major company, maybe 235 will say, wow, maybe Wisconsin is a good place to work, play, live, uh, all the other wonderful things we can do in Wisconsin. And uh, this could uh, multiply into uh, a booming business. With many companies, many major companies coming in. Well, well, yeah, and just, I mean, let, let's even, I mean, again, it's all theoretical. We don't know. But let's, Foxconn exactly. gets here. They get established. Uh, what about the people that, what about the companies that supply the materials that Foxconn uh, uses? I mean, it, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it make sense for them to locate close to Foxconn? And so, I mean, uh, I, I, this, this has, this is really, just, it could uh, be transformative. Oh, it's just 
unbelievable. I mean, uh, you can't even assess what this could mean. Right. Uh, I mean, just just too too. Uh, I, I don't even have a word to describe it. How about voluptuous? <laughs> well, that, that works for we're me. talking about women are voluptuous. This could be a voluptuous <laughs> deal for Wisconsin. Well, thank, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. See, I'm, in, I'm engaged, so I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about women, I'm not talking about voluptuous women or anything like that. I've, I've sworn off that. But, but I, it's a tremendous deal. And I guess, I, I understand, I, I think the, the headline is accurate. It is misleading because Foxconn, at least to me, it, it's not about the payback period of, of the taxes that they are paying. It's, it's what, what comes with it? What do they bring? What about the immediate investment of $10 billion, the investment of $10 billion building up the infrastructure? What about the jobs that are created and $10.5 billion in payroll and, and all these people who are now going to be working? Um, what, what about that? That's what the value is beyond just the, gee, what's the time it's going to take for Foxconn to pay back the money? We continue the conversation in two minutes. It's 1120. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. This is Jeff Wagner. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1122. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Paul and Mequon. Paul, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. You've made such uh, great points on this, and a couple of things I want to point out. People are talking about, oh, my gosh, 25 years until we get the payback. Uh, I'm thinking if you've got a conventional mortgage on your house, it's uh, typically 30 years. Bank yeah. doesn't think anything of that as, a, as an exorbitant time uh, to pay something back. And the other is be the multiplier effects. You look at Silicon Valley, companies such as Foxconn being in high tech, uh, they locate here, they draw similar companies in addition to suppliers to the area. What's analogous to that is if you look at automobile dealerships, you'll find them located practically right next to one another. Right. It helps boost their sales and their business. Uh, this is, this is a great deal for Wisconsin all around. I, I just don't see, you know, uh, these negative points that uh, are trying to be brought up as being valid. And one other thing is Miller Park. Uh, if you look at that and the financing that took place there, there's three Indiana professors of finance that did a study on the effect of um, uh, sports parks. Right. And I'd say that uh, Foxconn is going to bring better direct returns. Oh. And the reason, and more immediate, the reason I say that is that study done by those three professors showed that the for the sports stadiums, the return to the community is only point. Six percent. The yep. rest of it, the majority, goes to the owners. So yeah. this. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, Paul. Th- thanks for the call. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're making a point I was trying to make yesterday or the other day. Um, you know, I, I, I supported Miller Park. I think that was the right decision. Um, it, it, with each day that goes by, I continue to believe that that becomes more and more correct. Same thing. I, I supported the Bucks Arena, but you're right. The, these economic, you know, when it comes to sports facilities, the the value to a community is is negligible. Um, there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that there's not that much economic spillover. Now, maybe it's going to be different in downtown Milwaukee. You know, maybe with the other redevelopment projects around there, it's, you're going to have a renaissance. That's great. I hope it works out. But you're, with Foxconn, you're talking about a private company. And, yes, you are fronting them money to get them to come. But they, 
they, they are going to be spending money themselves. Like I say, $10 billion. They're going to be hiring people to do construction stuff. That's going to be $10 billion that's going to be spent on the facility that would not have been spent otherwise. You are going to have people that are going to be working there. You're going to be having a payroll over the same period that they estimate is going to be over $10 billion, not to mention then all the other businesses that this might be attract. If you simply look at, gee, what is the, how long is it going to take for them to pay taxes? You miss the bigger point, which is this is creating jobs. It is putting people to work. And it has the potential to bring all sorts of new and additional businesses into this area. Um, let's talk to Lloyd in Pewaukee. Lloyd, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, good morning. Uh, Hi, good morning, Lloyd. I'll make my quick comment and then uh, hang up and listen. Sure. Uh, it kind of boils down to the old question, uh, what would you rather have, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of something? Or a hundred percent of nothing, which is what you'd have if Foxconn doesn't come here. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Would, would we really? I mean, there there are people who are out there who are apparently arguing that we would have been better off a couple weeks ago if we woke up and the headline said Detroit got Foxconn. Are are people nuts? I mean, really? Have, are, have people lost their minds on this? No, thanks for the call. I appreciate. I mean, I, look here. Here's the the deal. I mean, and I understand you want to have appropriate scrutiny, but. I think there's every I don't know that there's any state around that wouldn't say, hey, look, we want the opportunity to have this transformative effect, to have one of the you know world's largest companies come locate a huge manufacturing plant here. And I understand there's no guarantees. I can't tell you what automation is going to do 15 or 20 years from now. But I can tell you that this is going to be a huge shot in the arm. And for the people who are saying, well, this might impact my state taxes. Okay, what about all the people that are going to be working there? What about the people, and again, one of the things that's been frustrating, and I continue to believe there is a political element to this, a number of the people who are unhappy with this just don't like Scott Walker. That's the bottom line. And if this had been Jim Doyle and Barack Obama that had made the same arrangements, they would be jumping up and down and turning cartwheels. Credit where credit is due. Tom Barrett understands how transformative this is. Unlike the congresswoman that represents Milwaukee County, Tom Barrett understands that, you know, for example, Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee County, but particularly the city, you know, one of the number one problems facing that is you've got unemployment. So this is an opportunity. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that you have lots of city residents who might be in a position where they can walk in tomorrow and get jobs doing you know the type of work that you got to do at Soxcon but there's going to be all sorts of other attendant jobs as well and rather than being I don't know, somebody who throws cold water on this, you would think that people like Gwen Moore or some of the Democrats who represent the city of Milwaukee, they'd be jumping up and down saying, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to figure out ways, how are we going to get our constituents, the people that are unemployed, that are living in certain areas of the city of Milwaukee, how are we going to get them access to the jobs that are going to be either at Foxconn or the supporting jobs or whatever? Uh, this fact that you've got some of these negative Nellies that are out there, and unfortunately, the Journal Sentinel, which has been a cheerleader pretty much for every expenditure of public dollars around, now they're kind of taking this ambivalent attitude on this as well. The headline in today's paper is accurate. It is not true, though. Foxconn is a great deal. It's 1128. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 
1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, we just had five generations, or actually the fifth generation of WTMJ listeners out here. Her name was Evie. Brought her into the booth and got a picture taken with mom and grandma and stuff. Five, she's the fifth generation of WTMJ listeners. All right, that's incredibly cool. Hey, if you're coming by the State Fair, stop off and say hi. Um, this is Wednesday. The State Fair runs through Sunday. Actually, um, the first, I'm going to be honest. The first two days, Thursday, last Thursday was wet. And last Friday was cold. There's <laughs> just no other way to. It was in the the temperature was in the mid 50s, and there we were talking wind chill. There was like a 20 mile an hour wind out of the northwest, but that's that was just a blip. It felt like November and August, but this is just an absolutely tremendous day that's out there. There was a story that was breaking yesterday that, that I wanted to I wanted to comment on um, because again, it's it's another one of these stories that you really have to. Go behind the headlines to figure out what's going on. The way the Journal Sentinel reported was, under a law that Republicans might eliminate in the next budget, Wisconsin school districts raised more than $217 million in new taxes for energy-related projects since 2009, all outside revenue caps and without going to referendum. Here's, in an effort to try to rein in school spending, here's what's really happened under the Walker administration. Um, school districts, if they are going to make massive expenditures, if they're going to go over what their budgets are, they have to go to referendum. They have to ask the voters for permission for this. And I personally don't think this is an unreasonable sort of thing. I mean, again, I understand that revenue caps are tight. I understand that people have to make do you know do more with less but i think it's always fine if you want to go to a community a community says okay we want to approve this type of spending you want to build a new field house fine you know, here we'll we'll do it you, at least you have the referendums and that's reasonable there however is an exception in the law which is big enough that you could drive a truck through because there's a provision in the law that says that if it's an energy related essentially said if it's an energy related project what you can do is you can go and you can spend the money without having to go to referendum. All you need is a majority vote on the school from the school board. Well, what that was intended to do was, let's say you've got an aging school district and the boiler goes out. You know, you, you need a new heating system. And so it's going to be $150,000, okay, to replace the heating system. Well, okay, the, the reason for this exception was we don't want... You know, you don't want to have to, you, you got to replace the furnace. you got to replace the boiler. And it's just not practical to make a school district go to a referendum every time they've got to replace the, the boiler, replace the heating system. Makes perfect sense. Nobody, I think, would quarrel with that. Well, the problem is these school districts have kind of caught on to this, and they've gotten wise, and they've figured out, hey, this is a way that we can jack up money without going to the taxpayers. So what they've been doing is they have been spending hand over money hand over fist on these so-called like green projects in order to avoid going to referendum. And the, these energy-related projects, it includes things like, oh, I, I don't know, roof repairs, kitchen remodels, new computers, all sorts of things. And some districts are okay with this. Some are just absolutely appalling. Kenosha, 
the Kenosha Unified School District has used this law to approve exceeding revenue limits by up to about $125 million, a larger amount than any other district has authorized. So what these school boards are doing is they're saying, we don't want to go to the voters. We don't want to go to referendums. What we're going to do is we're going to call this an energy-related project. And again, an exception to the law, which was designed to allow a school district to spend money to put in a new furnace system without having to go to referendum. It's now been used for all sorts of things. You put it under the umbrella of energy, and you get to avoid this. Well, all right, uh, the GOP senators are, are looking at eliminating this law because it violates uh, the, the idea of fiscal restraint and accountability that says that if school districts want to raise money for massive improvements, fine, you just give the voters a chance to say yes or no. This law has been an exception to this, and it's something, again, it's a loophole that is so big that you can have school districts like Kenosha Unified that drive a truck through this loophole that's so big. So when you hear about this story and you say, oh, the Republicans are against, these evil Republicans are against you know, energy projects. No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is there's a need for fiscal restraint, transparency, and accountability. And what's happening is some school districts are using this exception in the law, which was designed to allow you to make relatively minor purchases uh, that are quickly needed. Okay, you need the roof repairs. Fine, you do, you do the roof repairs. Or you need the new air conditioner. Fine, you do the new air conditioner to replace the old one. It wasn't intended to be $100 million in quote-unquote capital improvements all under the guise of energy. This would eliminate that loophole. It is way, way, way overdue. It's 1141 coming up in just a couple minutes. What if they didn't ask you plastic or paper anymore? Stick around. Jeff Wagner, we're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 11.45, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. I had to do the math for a minute. I was out during the break talking to some of the people that stopped by, and a gentleman said, I was just wondering, how old were you when you ran for attorney general? And I had to go back and kind of do the math there. And 30, I was 37. Um, and he also was kind enough to tell me he voted for me and uh, also asked if I had any intentions of doing that again, to which it was um, no. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. Glad to have the opportunity to do that. But uh, no, I, I think not. All right. We just got a couple minutes left in the program before I turn it over to Scafidi and Billstadt. But here's um, – I, 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 I did want to mention this story. Um, it, you have – in Chicago, and, and of course Chicago is the same place that's now put the, um, the the tax on sugared and actually pre-sweetened sort of sodas. That make, means that if you go and you buy a, a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew, for example, you're going to pay a dollar for that, and then you're going to pay an also an extra sixty-seven cents in tax. Chicago um, has now begun imposing a tax on plastic bags. Um, originally, they had a de- ban on disposable plastic bags. You know, So you go to the grocery store, and they ask you, do you want paper or plastic? And you say you want plastic. Well, it, you never, it, at least for a while in Chicago, if you said plastic, you couldn't have gotten one. So now there's a 7% tax, uh, 7 cent tax that is put on, on paper bags. And 
there's been it's been in effect for a few months now on plastic bags and there's been just a huge backlash to this what's happening is some people when they go into the grocery stores you know that they, they bring their their own bags you know and that's that avoids the whole thing but if you want a plastic bag like you go to the grocery store you're going to end up having to pay a 7 cent tax the argument in favor of this is that well these plastic bags end up in the landfill we should if we are good stewards of the economy and the environment we should be discouraging this 414-799-1620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line we've only got a couple minutes i will tell you this when i go to the grocery store and i try to avoid going to the store um just because i don't like to shop but when i do um all things being equal i'm typically asking for a paper bag because i think it's just kind of sturdier I, I prefer the paper bags. But every once in a while, I'll get the plastic bags. Do you think that we around here, our local communities, should do what they do in Chicago and try to discourage people from saying, I want a plastic bag, by imposing a $0.07 per bag tax or a nickel bag tax or a $0.10 bag tax? You know, fig- figure it out. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we be taxing people, making them pay extra if they decide that they want plastic Instead of paper, 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Tax Line. Uh, the city of Chicago estimates that as of the end of last month, July 25th, they have collected about $3 million in the, this tax. Um, and the way it works also in Chicago is you pay um, you pay a tax for the bag. Five cents goes to the city. Two cent goes to the real t- uh, the real the uh, retailer. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with uh, Jake in Milwaukee. Jake, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, hey Jeff, how you doing? I'm so well. I just uh, got back from Portland where they have a bag a ban on plastic bags out there. Right. And I thought it was amazing how I didn't see fences and gutter lines filled with bags from the landfills and where people just don't put them in uh, garbages. I think the ban on the plastic is a great idea. I think taxing something that inevitably is going to hurt the environment in the long run is kind of goofy, and I think we should just do away with them and go back to using paper. And we got all these dying ash trees. Paper product is should be going through the roof. Well, of course, that's the other the thing with, I mean, okay, well, thanks, thanks for the call. I appreciate it, Jake. I mean, part of it is, I mean, I guess that's the question. Are consumers, are we as consumers, are you ready to give up the convenience that comes with plastic bags? Um, again, I I prefer paper, but if you look at energy, and uh, you know, and again, I understand paper bags are renewable. The the energy to produce, from what I understand, a paper bag, it takes a lot more than the energy to produce a plastic bag. Pat in Franklin, Pat, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Sunday grocery store gives me a nickel off my groceries when I use their bags, my pla- their plastic bags. They're you get it. They give you they give you a discount for using their bags. Yep, their plastic bags. Yep, I get a nickel off each bag that I take in. Oh, that you take in. Okay, got it. Right, 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 right. So you reuse the plastic bags, in other words. Because their bags are fantastic. I've had them. I can use them mm-hmm. for years. Um, okay, I got it. So you. What about? Um, and so I you do get some paper, but plastic. The plastic bags are so incredibly handy. Right, yeah, the, like you're talking about, like the red, the, like the red bags that Sendix has, those things. Got it. Okay, no, thanks for the call. Right, yeah, I've never. Um, that's interesting. So she's reusing the bags. I just, 
and maybe I'm just not a good steward of the environment. That that could be. I, I know that there's. I know that there's a lot of people, including maybe you're driving around right now, and in the back of your car, you've got some of those reusable bags. So I see people coming into the grocery stores all the time. And I applaud you if you're doing that. I'm just, I just don't have the foresight to do it. I just, I just don't. I, I admit it is one of my failings. It's kind of like I, I just don't have the pre-plan enough to say, okay, I'm going to take the bag in, I'm going to clean it out, and then you know I'm going to have it with me. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to um, Jenny in Butler. Jenny, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. I have to say I'm originally from Chicago, and it's one more reason I will not go into that. <laughs> um, I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, I understand why they're doing it, but at the same point, how much effort does it take? I mean, when I go shopping now, I take bags with me. I've got the green reusable ones that I take to pick and save or woodmans or wherever I'm going, and I get money back for it. But, oh, my God, and we already know where this money is going. Right. You know, it's not going to the city. It's not going to the retail. It's going in real effort on a manual, you know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Jenny. That is the that that is the truth. What ends up happening is that I mean, look, you can you can work out the economics of this. And she makes a really interesting point. If stores really care about this, what they can end up doing is you just you do you give them incentive. You at a certain point you say, hey, you bring in your own bag. We're going to give you X amount off the groceries or whatever. This is a free market solution that could very well happen. And um, I just I don't think there'd be too much support here. But let's face it, in Chicago, I mean, if you go down there with all due respect to our flatlander friends i mean just be prepared one cent per ounce tax if you want soda diet soda or regular soda then you've got the bag tax sooner or later you're going to be paying more in taxes than you are for the item you're actually buying 